Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 1. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those parents, those present, were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Yeshua, and his brothers. In those days, Peter's, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of the number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received from his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language Al-Kadamah, that is, field of blood. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Yeshua was living among us beginning from John's Baptist baptism to the time when Yeshua was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Shaviot, Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Thank you, Sharon. It's good to be back. I wanted to thank everybody for their prayers and the uh, big gigantic poster um, with all the wonderful mushy sentiments. Um, not all of them were mushy, but uh, <laughs> one in particular stood out, um, uh, written by uh, Elaine, and it said, uh, which in Hebrew means, may you have complete health. And it stood in my mind particularly because I remember that uh, back about eight years ago, I found myself uh, in a similar predicament. I was at Rose uh, Medical uh, Hospital. Um, and uh, the local Jewish chaplain comes in, you know, he makes rounds and so on, and he comes to visit and he pops in and he sees a, uh, a Semitic-looking mug and uh, a name like Chaim. He figures, safe bet. He comes in, he wants to talk. And uh, part of the 
Jewish dialogue is, of course, getting around to Sanu. What do you do for a living? And uh, I said to him, well, um, I lead a Messianic Jewish congregation. Uh, at that point, his countenance changed, and he backed out uh, saying, Refia uh, Shalema, which is the Yiddish version of that. And uh, uh, he kind of skedaddled out of there real quick. You know, part of the picture for me has been over a number of years um, through different kinds of medical issues. You know, I had back injury a couple of times and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, basic lesson I learned is that God is able to get through these titanium plates here. Uh, and that typically... He has good lessons for me to learn um, as I'm willing to wait and actually shut up and listen. And um, so, it, you know, after a while you kind of get it. And um, the Lord is a patient teacher. That's really more, more to it than, than anything. And so after a while you kind of get the perspective of even when... Uh, God allows you to get into difficult circumstances. Um, you learn, along with the kvetching and murmuring, complaining, you learn to have an attitude of expectancy where you say, Lord, this is not a whole lot of fun, but you've spoken to me in times past through these, and I am eager and waiting to see what you want to say. So as these kinds of things uh, have taken place before, uh, and no, I'm not going to go into a uh, medical, clinical description of what took place, but uh, day one, it was one of these, kvetch, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. Lord, I, this, I feel lousy, misery. Then uh, second day, um, I have this little book, called Daily Light, and, uh, and, and the scripture, one of the scriptures that jumped out at me said the following, No eye have seen, nor ear heard, nor mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. This is, of course, from 1 Corinthians 2.9, and it's an a, um, allusion to Isaiah. And my first inclination was to say, Lord, you got to be kidding. Uh, if this is what you've prepared for me. Um, but after I was quiet long enough, my dialogue with the Lord and what I said to him simply was, okay, Lord, let's see what you have in mind through this. And I have to tell you, folks, that since that point, I had experienced a greater measure of the Lord's favor and a real sense of conviction that God is doing a new thing with me and that God is doing a new thing with us. You know, in case in point was the fact that 
I was gone last Shabbat, yet from all accounts, things went superbly. Um, worship was wonderful as usual. Uh, Torah service went well, and the message was clearly presented. Um, and great fellowship during the Onik time, and everybody pitched in to help. That, folks, is part of God's plan. You know, unfortunately, in our consumer-oriented mindset, you have this foolish notion that whoever stands behind the pulpit most of the time is, quote-unquote, the franchise uh, or the franchise builder. And the problem with that, I mean, there are lots of problems, but one of the problems is that the franchise builder is Yeshua. Amen? And that each one of us has been called and invited to participate in the work of building of his kingdom. That there is no such thing as the professionals doing the work of ministry. Because according to the word of God, those of us who have titles after our name are not called to do the work of the ministry as much as we're called to equip you guys to do the work of the kingdom of God. So that when you go out into the world, into all kinds of situations, as you interact with people that you work with or go to school with or shop with or your neighbors, the kingdom has an opportunity to grow and expand, first of all, in your life, and then in the lives of those around you that you rub shoulders with. And that's where you go, and the kingdom of God goes with you. Amen? So it was delightful for me to hear good news that, that the big guy here is Yeshua. By the way, Bix, I will stop harassing you at one point. Because Bixie referred to me as the big guy. Um, but part of what we are seeing is that God is at work in us. Sometimes in ways that are obvious and visible. Other times in ways that are invisible. That we take some time and insight from the Spirit of God to see to open our eyes to see what's going on. You know, as you can imagine, in a congregation like ours, you've had all kinds of naysayers. You've had people who would come, be with us for a while, and then mutter some wonderfully affirming statements such as, I don't see any growth here. Or the one that really grabbed me was, at the rate that we are going we will have a building in 77 years. Uh, a good number, a godly number. <laughs> However, um, God is bigger than the facts on the ground. What we are able to see with our eyes. And if our security and our happiness is based on the facts on the ground we of all people are most miserable. Because what God calls us to do is, yes, we have to deal with the facts on the ground, of course. We don't live in la-la land. But at the same time, 
we have to be able to, what Isaiah 40 uh, refers to, mounting up with wings as eagles and see things from God's perspective. In our lives as individuals, in our life as a congregational mishpacha. And um, our emphasis the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks, both in my previous message and also in Rabbi David's message, had to deal with what a lot of people, or what we tend to consider as a dirty word. And that is W-A-I-T. Wait. One of the reasons that we have a hard time with it is that we consider waiting to be a passive or a dead time. And what we see in Scripture is that waiting produces glorious fruits as we learn to wait correctly. Again, it's not passive. We don't lay down and die and say, God, whatever, whatever, whatever. Waiting requires an active attitude of trusting in God. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the difference between faith and fantasy. Uh, fantasy is, is hoping and wishing and, uh, for something good to happen according to our plan and strategy. Faith is based on what God said. And yes, there are times when we wish God would push a button and a trapdoor in heaven would open and down would come a set of blueprints that specifically defines exactly where we are to go, what we are to do. However, the, the simple fact of the matter is God has given us enough instructions for us to be able to put one foot forward after the other and point our nose at his direction in expectation that as we do that, the needed additional insights and instructions will be given to us. Waiting releases us from all the endless fuming, fussing, endless microanalysis and second guessing and false guilt. I think we've all been there, you know, where we replay the tapes the morning after and try to edit them and I wish I could have done that. That was so unbelievably stupid and so on and so forth. It means you don't do that. You're free. You're free because it's God's gig. So you learn to rest in God's control. Who, like you say, in his master plans. And yes, folks, waiting is a steep learning curve. I don't think there's a single human being among us here. I know it, we all have to be human beings here. Um, who gets it all the time and who gets it in every single area. Part of what happens is we get it in one area and then the Lord says, okay, you got it here. Now let's work in this area. Um, because I want to bring about a deepening and a maturation in your, in your life. And yes, you may have gotten it here in this area, but we need to work on this area. And so with God in his mercy brings about additional advanced refresher courses in learning to wait. And we get the discipline and the joy of learning to wait 
again and again until it becomes part of our DNA. And so Yeshua gives instruction that seem to be contradictory, confusing. On one hand, he tells the dis- he gives the disciples the great commission: go into all the world and and make disciples of every nation, beginning Jerusalem, Judea, the uh, the uh, the uh, outer more outer most parts of the earth. That's on one hand. On the other hand, the next, the immediate direction is park your carcass here in Jerusalem and wait. Either or, actually both and. The plan is that yes, you will go out, but first of all, you have to learn to wait. Wait for the gift of the Spirit. Now I want to park here for just a few minutes because the short version was that they were to wait for the coming of the Spirit to equip them for the massive work of spreading the good news. But like anything else that has to do with God, it has different parts. It's complex. So when, when Scripture or, or when we speak about the coming of the Spirit, what does that suggest? Does that imply that the Holy Spirit was on an island in, in the um, Mediterranean uh, taking a vacation and not engaged with the people? That's often the way people refer to the coming of the Spirit at Acts chapter 2. As if the Spirit of God <clears throat> was not active. Then all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2 the Spirit of God springs to life and does all these awesome, unbelievable things. It is such a uh, limited, and I would say perversion, of what the Word of God really teaches us about the activity, the presence and the activity of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Remember in creation that the Spirit of God was hovering over creation. The Holy Spirit was somehow mystically involved in the creative acts. Genesis 1.1, the Spirit of God was with Moses and with David. And the Spirit of God was with, with the whole nation of Israel, active. We see in Haggai chapter 2, this is what I covenant with you when I came out of Egypt, when you came out of Egypt and my Spirit remains among you, do not fear. My Spirit, Ruach, Holy Spirit stands with you. This is in Haggai chapter 2, just before the building of the second temple. Isaiah chapter 63. In all their distress, he too was distressed. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them in all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved. His Holy Spirit. By the way, you cannot grieve a thing. And it kind of irritates me, like sort of like, like uh, uh, fingernails on a chalkboard whenever folks refer to the Spirit of God as it. You know, like, like a force. 
Um, you cannot grieve a force. The Spirit of God has mind, will, and emotion. Could not be grieved if it was just a thing. Now, what about the disciples? Think about it. Um, were they just on their own, doing their thing, waiting, preparing, and was the Spirit of God someplace else in China? My strong suggestion to you is that the Spirit of God was with him active before that day on Shavuot and Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Kind of leading them, preparing them for that day. Now yes, you can say that what took place on that day on, in Acts chapter 2 was dramatically different. It was the... Um, entrance ramp into the, be the beginning of the kingdom of God in a new and, f and powerful way. However, the Spirit of God was, was there, was active. Think about it. A couple of things to point out to you. One is that... Um, Right after Yeshua died, before he rose from the dead, what were the disciples like? They were down at the mouth. They were a group of dispirited individuals who were convinced that uh, they were not going anywhere. You see that, for example, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, think, thinking, oh, you know, we had put our hopes in him and, and uh, he didn't come through, he's dead, and who knows what's going to happen. They were dispirited. And we see from this passage and also from Luke, the end of Luke chapter 24, when Yeshua ascended, by the way, David, Rabbi David covered some of that last Shabbat, when Yeshua ascended, they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with Great joy. These were a bunch of depressed individuals. Scared of their own shadow. About a month and a half before. What made the difference? And now all of a sudden. They are people who are full of joy. That isn't the Holy Spirit being there. And, and shape, shaping and fashioning them. Also, you have to remember that Jerusalem was not a safe place for them. Think about it. Still the same city where Messiah was crucified, where a mob a month and a half before said crucify him. I would say for these disciples, the inclination was probably to say something like, okay, we are not stupid. We are not sitting here waiting for a posse to come from the Sanhedrin to come and get us. Like it got Yeshua. That would be the natural inclination, wouldn't it? Basic survival, right? Yes? Would you stick around someplace that you know is extremely dangerous? No? 
So the fact that they were there, that they are filled with joy, either means that they're mishugi, which is possible, or else that the Spirit of God is beginning to do some pretty major stuff with them. That the fear buttons that they all have seem to be covered somehow. And then there's another reason that we have to say that the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit is working. These ex- were not exactly wallflowers. These were not, the, the disciples were not exactly what you call uh, mild-mannered individuals. And let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Yeshua had just uh, um, displayed for them his glory on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, uh, John and uh, James and Peter see Yeshua transformed from an ordinary looking human being to someone who's clearly divine. And, and at some point, Relatively soon after that, an argument breaks out among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now think, of, think about it. Uh, you had just seen Yeshua transformed into God in, in, in invisible form. What would that do to your brain? It would make you realize that you're not dealing with just an ordinary human being. And that life is not about you, but about him. Well, these disciples clearly don't seem to get it. Then as Yeshua is preparing for his death, another argument breaks out among them as to which would be considered the greatest. The first, by the way, the first um, case was Luke 9. This one is Luke 22. And by the way, you may remember or not that Yeshua gave James and John the nickname of Boanerges, which roughly translated sons of thunder can also be um, sons of anger. It implies that at least James and John were guys that could fly off the handle real quick. In fact, we see that as they approach a Samaritan village and they ask for shelter because there was no um, Hampton Inn or Motel 6 in those days. And the Samaritans refuse And James and John say to Yeshua, Lord, let us nuke them. Luke chapter 9, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now think about being locked up with with these two sons of thunder for 10 days. And by the way, Peter was no wallflower either. You know, he whips out the sword, chops off the ear of of the high priest. 
Another one of the disciples was Simon the Zealot. Again, not the mild-mannered fellow. And um, I have the impression from the little sketches that we have of some of the ladies there that they were not wallflowers either. So the point is, these guys were to be in close quarters for a period of time. And why was it possible for them to be together, not just physically, but spiritually? If it wasn't for the working of the Spirit of God. They all joined together constantly in prayer. The Spirit of God had to be there. Now, what does together mean? Well, together, by the way, obviously has to to mean to be physically together in the same place. Um, which still, by the way, hasn't changed. Even in this day of electronic community and social networking, relationships really, really do not develop unless you are physically together. That's why scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And by the way, on, on, a, um, on a bit of a t- tangent, I can tell you in all the years of experience, all the years of ministry experience that I've had, the folks who go off and come up with Meshuggi kind of doctrine are the folks who isolate themselves and who are not held accountable. And part of what grieves me is I see people who for one reason or another have been out of fellowship for a while. Um, They got hurt someplace and they said, I'm gone, I'm out of here. And they would come and say something like, I've been out of fellowship for two or three years and it grieves my heart. Simply because I can tell you that God's blessing would only come to you in some areas as you're willing to come together with other sheep, with the Lord's sheep. Yes, there are things that you get directly from God, just you and Him, but there are things that God will not give you if you choose to isolate yourself. In fact, there's a strong likelihood if you isolate yourself, you will get beat up and chewed up not by other sheep, but by the lion the predator who always looks to jump on the isolated animals from the herd and yes I know we all can go through our list of rationale you know where where you look at fellow believers and you say I don't want to be around those stinky sheep (laughs) and furthermore this particular ram just bit me I don't want to be bitten again, so I'm going off. Well, the truth is, folks, Yeshua's way is not to isolate. Yeshua's way is to open your heart even when there has been biting. Been there, done that, have a few bite marks. The Spirit of God will do powerful things as we're willing to risk being together, not just being physically together, but being open 
and transparent with one another. You know that you can be together with folks and have walls between you and them, in which case you're still alone. And the Lord's plan is for us to be open and transparent, walk in the light as He is in the light, so that what you see is what you get. Instead of putting facades and instead of building walls. That's what had to happen with this group of feisty passion fruits called the disciples. And they, yes, they were together physically, but they were also together spiritually. The word that's used there has to refers to being with one mind, praying together with one mind. And you know, I, I, I'm sure you've been around folks who like to pray and who like to be heard when they're together with other folks. Um, particularly annoying when somebody likes to pray for about half an hour, totally oblivious to the fact that there are other folks around. It has to be with one mind so that as we pray... We pray in unity because, why? Because the Ruach, the Spirit, somehow guides us so that we pray together. We join together. And the Word of God tells us, folks, that unity is always an indication of the fact that the Holy Spirit is actively present. Unity always proves that the Spirit of God is active, is present and active. Paul tells us the following, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What that means is unity that comes from the Spirit of God. And yes, we engage and, and make an effort to be part of that, but it comes about because the Holy Spirit brings about that unity. And you read in Scripture, both in the Tanakh, in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and the history of revivals, you'll always find that God's power is poured out as people come together. Come together in prayer. And yes, we, part of our I believe psychosis is the notion that we can be off in a corner and that God will do all kinds of amazing things just with us and that we will do an Elijah number. Folks, do remember, it's good to remember that there was one Elijah and one Elisha. That the rest of us are called to be sheep who are part of the Lord's flock together. Not to isolate so I believe that's one reason why Yeshua says don't leave Jerusalem. In other words, don't scatter. Don't go here, don't go there, don't go someplace else. Stay together in Jerusalem. Obviously, a big chunk of the, prob- of the reason for that is that the disciples knew they, had, uh, they at least had a hunch that something major was going to happen uh, because all the Pilgrims that were going to come from around the world, all the Jewish 
pilgrims. Yeshua says, wait, wait together. And what did that look like? Well, obviously part of that, a big chunk of it was prayer. And what wasn't one of these, Lord, uh, uh, thank you for the food and it's a gorgeous day and would you please remember so-and-so, they're, they're hurting. And, okay, let's get on with the program. The word that's used there for being constant in prayer involves intense effort despite difficulty. Do you know what it's like to pray sometimes even though you don't feel like praying? Where a part of you just wants to bolt and run. It's a gorgeous day. You want to go to the mountains or, or you, you want to go work uh, on something that's been bugging you for a while and uh, you see something needs to, to be done and you have a list of things to do. And instead you realize that you need to pray and you want to pray. Or maybe you want to pray and you need to pray, however that works. It requires a basic willingness and a commitment and a discipline on our part. Yes, discipline. Another dirty word for us. They prayed with intense effort. Persevering, overcoming kind of prayer. We see a number of examples of that. For instance, Moses praying um, for the defeat of the Amalekites. He got tired. Not just because he was an old dude. We see Paul, for example, when he's praying for the Galatian believers who are all fouled up in their understanding of, of Yeshua. Paul says to them in Galatians 4, My dear children, for whom I am again, I, I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Messiah is formed in you. Strange language for a guy, isn't it? He, never, he had never given birth, so what is he talking about? I believe it's besides the fact that he is writing this intense letter to them, it obviously refers to the fact that he is doing some heavy-duty praying for these believers who've gotten all fouled up and confused. Another example is, is Epaphras, who is another um, servant, minister. Paul says, Epaphras, in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras is always wrestling for you in prayer that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and self-assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you. And yes, he did things that were practical but he invests a great deal of time in intensive prayer. And by the way, what I found intriguing is that there are a lot of parallels that you can draw from Acts, from these chapters of Acts, and from Nehemiah. What God wants to do requires that God's people devote themselves to prayer. God's blessing come to those who learn to wait on him and who learn to wait on him consistently. Here's a powerful statement from Isaiah chapter 64. Since 
ancient time no one has heard, nor ear has perceived, nor eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Let me ask you a basic question. Do you want God to do good things, great things in your life? Then you learn to wait. You learn to wait. Specifically, you learn to wait on Him for His good plans and purposes. And by the way, that's been a huge part of our commitment. If you've been around Yeshua Tzion for any length of time, you know that we are committed to prayer, corporate prayer. Yes, individual prayer is absolutely required, but then we learn to come together and pray together in expectation then that God will work in response to our prayers. Not because we say so and because we have a strategy and a plan, but because we know what God has said to us and we know that God has good plans for us here at Yeshua Tzion. Can you say amen to that? And at this point, we get the fact that whatever has to happen will happen by the grace of God and by the power of God at work as we learn to wait on Him. And that's true for us as a congregational mishpacha. It's true for each one of us here as an individual. You know, we all struggle, we all fuss, we all fume because we have needs and issues that don't seem to come together. And we pour time and energy and, and, uh, and nerves into them. Nothing seems to change. And at some point, the light bulb goes off in our mind and we realize, oh, I need to pray. I tried everything else. Now maybe I need to pray. Maybe God has an answer here. I want to experience that answer. Coming back to the disciples. By the way, we sometimes get the notion that they were locked up together for those, for those days. By the way, it was 10 days. Scripture says that Yeshua was with them for, for 40 days and there were 50 days between Pentecost and, and um, Passover or the second day of Passover, so it's 10 days. Luke, we get an additional picture in chapter 24, which is the end. Luke tells us, then they worshiped Yeshua. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. No contradiction between Luke and Acts. It simply means they did both and. They prayed intensively, they went out, and they worshipped. By the way, at the temple, there were three times of prayer. And they probably joined in, participated in, in, in the prayer times at, at the temple. So we don't have a blow-by-blow blow description of exactly what they did. But they spent time together, whether in the upper room or whether at the temple. 
The bottom line is they had a basic grasp that God was going to work and they're going to wait for him to do the work. Remember that Yeshua didn't say to them, you are to wait so many days. He simply said, not many days. Well, not many days, you can drive a Mack truck through that. They were to wait in confident expectation. That's a basic principle for you and I, folks. A basic means of developing and growing and maturing as men and women of God is learning to wait on him in confident expectation for his work. Jeremiah tells us the following, 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worry in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. What a lovely picture of the way God intends for us to be. Yes, heat comes. Yes, difficulties come. However, as we, are, as we learn to send our roots into the Lord, as we learn to depend on Him, as we learn to wait on Him, as we learn to expect a great, things, great things from God, then part of what happens is that we are strengthened and em- empowered to persevere through all kinds of circumstances. And we're able to bear fruit. By the way, last Shabbat we celebrated, or you all celebrated, I didn't celebrate much of anything. Um, Tubishvati Festival of New Year of Trees. Now what you may or may not realize is that the celebration of Tubishvat takes place not when there is harvest and you can see all kinds of fruit but the celebration of, of the new year of trees takes place when you have just tiny little buds and you have the tiny little buds and the promise of the harvest that is to come. That's an act of faith to celebrate something that isn't there yet. And th- this is what the Lord calls on us to do is to learn to be like, like the wise farmer. James puts it this way. Be patient then until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield his valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rain. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And yes, of course, the primary meaning here is that the Lord is coming in a massive way. But I believe that this can also be taken to mean that the Lord is coming in our day and age, in our life, in our situations. But part of the process, folks, is simply learning to have that gutsy faith where you say, God, I'm having dickens of a time, but I know you're in control. 
That's what the Lord requires. It requires for all of us. And as we stand up and pray in just a moment and worship, I just want to throw out this challenge to you. Are you able to see God in your life? Or are you living like a practical atheist? That everything that happens in your life has to happen because you do it. Or do you have some sense that somehow God is at work and somehow he will bring things about? And if so, are you willing to depend on him for the good plans he has for you? And wait for that to come about. You, you, as you have heard the saying, good things come to he or she who waits. It certainly is a basic kingdom principle. Let's pray. And please stand. Lord God, we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for all the times when we don't trust you, Lord, when we choose to freak out and give in to fear and feel like we need to be the ones controlling and managing and fixing situations. We repent of that, Lord, because we desire, Lord God, to see more and more of you, to see you in control, to see you active, to see you carrying out your counsel, your good plans and purposes for us. And so we pray, Lord God, for that gutsy faith, that gutsy faith, Lord, that trusts you, that lays hold of the things that you have prepared. Thank you, Lord God, that you know each and every single one of us and where our circumstances are and where we struggle, where we fail. And Lord, thank you that you love us despite our failures. And we simply pray, Lord God, that your Ruach would come and encourage and challenge us, Lord God, to trust you more fully. Because we want to see your good plans and purposes carried out, Lord. The blessings that you have planned for us come about. Pray, Lord God, for that courage, the heart of courage, Lord, to depend on you in Yeshua's name. Amen.